You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thanks very much, Scott. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Dominic Chewin for Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead on the show. Today's key inflation data is still ahead of the Fed's 2% target, but that's not stopping our next market guest from playing offense. But he's doing it in a more non-traditional way. He's here to tell us how to do it. Plus, from the housing shortage to onshoring to America's aging demographic, there is a REIT trade to take advantage of all that. We have the names and the one trend our next guest says is especially bullish in that sector. And in it for the long game. Titleist parent company at Kushnet missing on revenues, sales down year over year. That CEO joins us live in a CNBC debut to talk about golf demand, live versus PGA Tour, and what it will take to take the sport to that next level. But we begin with a check on the markets right now, and the Dow is trying to climb back towards the unchanged level right now, as you can see there, just down about one-tenth of one percent. The S&P 500 currently sitting at 5,082. That's up about one-quarter of one percent. And the Nasdaq Composite up about one-half of one percent, 16,025, the last trade there. Uh, We can't leave without checking at least what's happening with Bitcoin prices right now. Currently up about one-and-a-half percent off the session highs today, though still north of 61,000 per token. You remember yesterday it briefly touched the 64,000 mark before backing off that. So we'll keep an eye on those Bitcoin prices. And then the consumer trade right now, some better than expected earnings reports from the likes of Best Buy and Celsius Holdings. Birkenstock was a little bit more mixed, but you can see there the massive move higher in Celsius. There is some uh, at least chatter right now that internet message boards are picking up on that particular stock and perhaps a bit of short interest is contributing to the upside in Celsius with their earnings report earlier this morning. Well, the latest economic data shows the Fed's inflation battle while moving in the right direction, is not quite over. Core PCE, that's the Fed's preferred gauge of inflation, rose four-tenths of a percent in January and is up roughly just about 2.8% from a year ago. Headline PCE rose three-tenths of a percent and is up about 2.4% year over year. Both, by the way, were in line with economist expectations. But personal incomes jumped 1% last month. That was well above forecasts. So will this change the Fed's easing timeline? Joining me now is Jay Bryson, chief economist over at Wells Fargo. Also, our own CNBC senior economics reporter, Steve Leisman, is here as well. Uh, Gentlemen, thank you both for being here. Steve, uh, as I customarily do, I'll start with you for the bigger picture story here. Just how important was this PCE read to the overall picture for the Fed and rates? Well, it, it's something that they have already incorporated, something the market's already incorporated. It was a very, very close, as you said, it was spot on in terms of the economists taking the CPI, taking the PPI, coming up with a really good estimate on uh, uh, the PCE. And it came in as expected, which was higher than expected. And it's a reason why the Fed is, is being less aggressive about the idea of cutting interest rates. At the same time, it's a number that many people think is a bit of an anomaly relative to the trend of inflation coming down. Um, I was uh, um, very glad to see that Jay had this call of May rate cuts, which was my call. And I know he thinks there's more risk around it. But look, if you get back on track for a couple more months before the the May meeting, I don't think it's out of the question. And um, if you treat this and think about this as more of an anomaly than the trend, then you can think that maybe sometime 
uh, late spring, early summer, the Fed could be cutting interest rates. Well, it's a good thing, Steve, that we have the horse's mouth, the primary source here to kind of talk about that right now. <laughs> um, with that in mind, Jay, because Steve pointed out the expectations that you have, it might be good for us for the record to hear just what the expectation is from you for those rate cuts, if and when they happen, and if the data that came out this morning really did anything to change it, even though we know it was bang in line with expectations. Yeah. So, um, Dom, I guess what I would say is our official forecast, which we did earlier this month, was looking for them to go into May, uh, to go 25 basis points on May 1st. Um, that was before the CPI print came out, uh, which is hotter than expected. And, you know, as Steve just you know pointed out, I mean, we're still sitting at May at this point. I think the risks are skewed towards June. You know, at, at this point, uh, we, we're going to have two more, um, you know, PCE uh, prints bef- between now and then, two more employment reports. So we'll see what the data to say coming uh, going forward here. Um, so, you know, again, I think the risks are skewed, you know, in that direction. In terms of today, I don't think it really did anything moving that much in, in terms of today. We knew today was going to be a little bit hot in terms of PCE, and it hasn't really changed our thinking all that much. There is a consensus, Jay, building around about at least multiple rate cuts throughout the course of this year when they do start, and most people are now tilting towards that kind of May to July time frame for when they do kind of kick off. How many do you think happen? And in total, I mean, some people are saying 100 to 125 basis points. If that's in 25 basis point increments, quarter point increments, that's four to five. Where do you stand? Yeah, so, you know, again, if I look at our official forecast, we're at 125. I think the risk is skewed a little bit lower than that, maybe 100. Um, and, you know, going 25 basis points at a clip to go 50, I think you really have to see the economy being in trouble. And that's not what we're seeing at this point. And so we see a modest pace of easing. And largely because as inflation comes down, just to keep the stance of monetary policy the same in terms of the real rate of interest, the Fed needs to be cutting. And so if inflation is slowly receding from now, we think a slow pace of rate cuts going forward is probably you know, the right look. You know, Steve, it's interesting. I've, I've talked to you and, and you, know, you and I both know we, we all talk to a lot of market participants out there, academics, experts in their field. One of the interesting conversations I've had a little <laughs> bit more these days is this idea of if it ain't broke, why fix it? In reference to this idea that the jobs market is still doing OK, GDP growth is being gradually estimated higher for the current quarter and coming months. Why would you even need to think about this expectation of cutting rates? Is it important for the economy to have rate cuts as part of the future? Yeah, I mean, I think there is definitely a gathering idea around that notion that, hey, maybe rates are in the right place. I just think that when you think about a risk management idea, that the idea that maybe the Fed uh, needs to prepare a little bit for what's coming down the pike, that uh, and, and unless you change your view of what the neutral rate is, it's hard to imagine that the economy needs the same kind of restrictive uh, funds rate at this level of inflation as it did at the prior level of inflation. There's a lot to be said for at least a tweak here. And I like the way Jay put it. I'm actually a little more I guess, hawkish in the regard. I think there's three coming this year with an option on a fourth in December if needed. And I think Jay is spot on that it's going to take a, a much more weakness to get the Fed to do 50. But I do think that there's a there, given the lags in monetary policy, there's a reason for the Fed to act uh, somewhat preemptively. Um, I think that Powell has it in his head that once they start, they kind of can't stop. 
But if you look back, I forget who it was. Maybe it was, um, I believe it was Jefferson, the vice chair of the Fed, who went back and gave us the 1995 analogy, one where the Fed did three cuts over like a six-month period or something like that, that it waited a very long time before doing anything. The idea of tweaking the policy, providing a little bit of relief to the economy, but not a whole lot, is something that I think is a, a model the Fed could think about. Jay, what, what exactly in your mind is, because it's all assumptions driven, what exactly in your mind do you think is going to be that more neutral rate longer term for, for the Fed funds uh, market overall, the one that kind of keeps things in that Goldilocks scenario? Yeah, so, you know, if, you, if you're looking at a 2% inflation target, which they obviously are, and a real rate of growth in the economy, let's call it 2%. Um, so then you're looking at a probably neutral policy rate somewhere around 35 to 4%. Um, and so where we are now, that we're looking at, let's call it maybe, you know, 125, 150 basis points. Um, what time period that is, um, you know, if, if the economy continues to slow at a gradual pace, you know, as Steve's points out, maybe you bring it down 75 basis points, you pause, you see how things are going um, you, you get a lot of rate cuts. Again, I think the economy has to be in a lot of trouble and we're just not seeing that right now. All right, Steve, last word to you here. So real quick, we're going to have uh, a couple Fed folks on tomorrow. We have a, a, a Barkin on from Richmond. We have Goolsby on from Chicago. But maybe more important than all that, if you can believe it, Dom, is on this show at 1 o'clock, 24 hours from now, we're going to have Jeremy Stein on, the Fed, uh, former Fed governor um, and uh, widely regarded professor who is delivering a speech tomorrow at the uh, Chicago Booth School Monetary Policy Conference about just what we're talking about, the neutral rate. And I don't know, Dom, if you can be more excited than, that, than I am. But I think that's going to be a very, very important uh, speech he's delivering and a very, very important conversation we're going to have right here about what is the bottom line the Fed needs to be aiming for? What is that neutral rate? You, me, and Jay are going to be nerding out 24 hours from now <laughs> about listening to those comments. All right. Jay, thank you so much for being right here. On. Steve, thank you very much. As, and we'll look Thanks. forward to all that Fed speak. Uh, coming up tomorrow, guys. Thank you very much. All right. Well, markets are focused on the timing of those Fed rate cuts, hypothetically. Our next guest says he's watching the two-year Treasury yield, which is currently sitting at 4.6% in a higher rate environment. He's playing offense with historically defensive areas of the market. So joining me now is John Mowry, the chief investment officer over at NFJ Investments. John, thank you very much for being here. You just heard the rate conversation that we had right now. Things are very much building and coalescing around this consensus for when they start and how deep they go. What exactly does that do for the outlook for the markets overall, specifically in equities? Well, I think the key message when I look at the most recent data is disinflation is continuing. Um, and this has been going on now for uh, several quarters in a row. So I think the trend is disinflation. And I think that the two-year bond yield is a very important barometer for where the Fed is going with cuts. In fact, if you go back to 1985 and you uh, look at the spread between the two-year bond yield, which is obviously set by the market, and the Fed funds rate, which is set by the Fed, that spread is in the 95th percentile. What does that mean? That means that the two-year bond yield is lower by roughly 100 basis points than the Fed funds. And the reason that's important is because it's telling the Fed they need to cut. And every time you have periods where the two-year bond yield uh, sits below that Fed funds rate, that is the building pressure for the Fed 
to cut. So I think when you look at that data historically, you've got evidence that at least 100 basis points needs to come out. And the two-year bond yield is going to fluctuate with obviously the health of the economy and the continued inflation reports that we're seeing uh, that come out. And one more comment I make about inflation. Inflation, uh, you know, obviously has a large portion tied to shelter, roughly one-third of the CPI. Uh, that basket is weighted toward multi, uh, excuse me, toward uh, housing, less toward multifamily, single-family housing. The reason that's important, Dom, is that uh, single-family housing actually has uh, been somewhat stickier than folks would have expected because of higher rates. So ironically, higher rates have created more of an inflationary uh, dynamic in single-family housing than I think folks would have anticipated a year and a half ago. Yeah, there's there's an argument to be made that if you lowered interest rates, people would actually transact and get deals done more, and the housing market would kind of unlock there. Uh, okay, I get that. Let's talk a little bit about with that outlook, what exactly is the place to be? Where do you want to go? What goes on the shopping list, so to speak, when it comes to places to take a view on that environment with rates? Well, so I think that, you know, predicting exactly when the Fed's going to cut um, can sometimes cause investors to miss the opportunities that are in front of them. When I look at the most uh, significant valuation dislocations in the market, I see these in the yield-sensitive areas. It's in real estate, publicly traded REITs, it's in uh, banking stocks, it's in utilities. I mean, for example, utilities have their biggest yield premium to the S&P 500 going back to 2003. And that's rational because why would you sit there in uh, higher yielding stocks when you can clip coupons and fixed income and when you have a growth trend uh, that has been sparked by uh, you know, uh, AI, NVIDIA, and the semiconductor space? But the uh, one cautionary piece of information I would share is that the SOX, or the semi-broader uh, index, that's at an all-time high valuation, and it is being powered by earnings growth. But if there's a slowdown in the economy, that is vulnerable, particularly uh, in some of those higher beta areas. And the lower beta areas are big time on sale. And what I would also comment about some of these areas, REITs, utilities, banks, uh, there have been multiple reasons why these have gotten cheaper. Uh, the banks got cheap in March because of a liability crisis, not an asset crisis. What I mean by that is that the dislocation occurred because of higher rates, and that caused issues on their balance sheets. But it wasn't asset quality deterioration like we saw in the GFC. Particularly with the utilities and the REITs, people were, particularly in staples in those areas, people were overpaying for those areas at the end of 22, anticipating the recession in 2023. So I think those areas are the most discounted. I think they offer a lot of upside opportunity, and uh, you get to clip growing coupons uh, if you move into these areas. And I think that's an interesting way for investors to add uh, additional income and appreciation to their portfolio. All right. John Mowry with NFJ Investments with a take on playing offense with defense. Thank you very much. We'll see you soon, sir. Thank you. All right. Well, January's pending home sales were out this morning, and it was a big miss. Diana Olick joins us with the details there. Diana, this is the residential side of things, but in homes as opposed to REITs. That's right, Tom. And not only was it a miss, but December's read was revised even lower. Pending sales in January dropped nearly 5% month to month, according to the National Association of Realtors. The street was looking for a 2% gain, sales down nearly 9% year over year. Now, this number is based on signed contracts, so people out shopping in January and making the deal. 
The 30-year fixed started January around 6 and 7.5%, down from the 8% high in October, but off the lows of December. They rose a little bit during January before crossing 7% in February. The Realtors chief economist Lawrence Yun wrote, consumers are showing extra sensitivity to changes in mortgage rates in the current cycle, and that's impacting home sales. Regionally, sales rose month to month in the Northeast and West, but fell in the Midwest and South. Sales down across the nation year over year. There was no mention in this report of inventory, but Redfin said this morning that new listings rose 13% during the four weeks ending February 25th compared with the same period a year ago. That's the biggest increase in nearly three years, but, but pending sales for that period dropped 8%. So there's your mortgage rate effect, Dom. Uh, uh, Diana, there's there's been some anecdotal reporting done with re with regard to certain uh, of those so-called past and current hot real estate markets, places like Arizona, places like Florida, where there are stories about an uptick in the number of listings that people are starting to see. Uh, that's not official data, but just you know, residents and real estate brokers in the area. Do you think that there is an unlocking for the spring season coming that people are ready to put their houses on the market if mortgage rates cooperate? Well, there's a slight unlocking only because you know we're coming up on March, and that is the all-important spring market, and that's when people list their homes for sale. So we see that seasonally every year. We still need a lot more homes on the market, and we're not going to see the kind of in inventory uptick that we really need. We've seen this increase, but when you're coming off of these record low inventory levels, you have to give a lot more than that in order to have a robust selling season. And a lot of sellers are saying, you know, with mortgage rates in the 7% range now, it's going to be harder for me to get a buyer. Am I going to have to give incentives, buy down their mortgage rate, et cetera, in order to get a buyer? Or on the other side, do I want to sell my house when 7% is out there and I need to buy another house at that rate? And I've got, you know, 2.5% from a couple of years ago. So there's a lot holding today's seller back, but it is the spring. So you will see some houses, you know, come on the market everywhere. If you're not in love with your house, you're in love with your mortgage. Dinah Oleg, thank you very much. We'll talk to you later on. Coming up on the show, Morgan Stanley is getting more bullish on one area of commercial real estate where supply can't keep up with demand. And no, it's not tied to artificial intelligence. The sector and their top picks coming up next. Plus, Titleist's parent company, a Kushnet, not seeing much green today on weaker than expected results, but the stock's coming off its best year since the start of the pandemic. And we've got a rare and exclusive interview with the Kushnet CEO coming up. The Exchange is back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Welcome back to The Exchange. While the office sector has been hit hard, our next guest says to keep in mind that's only a small part of the real estate investment trust sector. She sees big opportunities elsewhere and she's here with the trends and the trades and where she's seeing some of the biggest upside potential. So joining me now for more on this is Laurel Durkee, the head of global listed real estate assets, real assets at Morgan Stanley Investment Management. Uh, Laurel, real is a lot. There's a lot of stuff that constitutes real assets, but the one people most identify with is real estate, is the land, the buildings, and everything else. Absolutely. Let's talk a little bit about where those opportunities are. We just spent a whole segment or two talking about rates and their impact on places like residential. Mm -hmm. What does it mean for the overall commercial side of things? 
Obviously, interest rates are going to have a significant impact on all of real estate, commercial and residential. Um, what, what I'm seeing is that the interest rate environment and the volatility in the, in the interest rate environment has really been impacting the pricing of these stocks. But when you look at the fundamentals, the fundamentals in a lot of the sectors that I'm investing in remain very strong. And that's where I'm excited. Interest rates I cannot control. And I think there is a growing consensus around the fact that we absolutely will see rate cuts at the latter half of this year. The fundamentals is what I'm focused on and where I believe we can differentiate and really add alpha. Outside of your primary residence, mm-hmm. people are maybe a little bit scared, maybe apprehensive to, to go into real estate, with, uh, whether at the multifamily industrial type level, commercial level warehouse. Where exactly is the opportunity right now, given the fact that rates are maybe a little uncertain? Mm-hmm. So the underlying sectoral composition of the listed real estate universe is a lot larger than just the traditional that you would think of. It's not just office, it's not just multifamily. So what I'm excited about is in some of the alternative sectors. And the alternative sectors really are inclusive of data centers and healthcare real estate and cell towers and self-storage and some of these areas of real estate that have secular drivers of demand. What's interesting about that is they have already been some of the outperformers so far when it comes to real estate. You're talking about office complexes that are owned by REITs that specialize in laboratory and factory type facilities for healthcare. You're talking about maybe even senior living. Where exactly, what kind of stocks? Are there picks that you like more than others? So I think focusing specifically on healthcare, um, the seniors housing sector is an area that has a significant amount of demand that is manifesting itself as we speak. When you take a step back and think about aging demographics within this country, baby boomers right now are aged between 60 and 78. They are approaching the prime age to move into seniors housing facilities. So a name that really plays into this aging demographic theme is Well Tower, ticker W-E-L-L. By the way, Laurel, just hold that thought, because by the way, that was our mystery chart. If you're wondering, we kind of showed you that mystery chart. It is Well Tower. And by the way, the senior housing thing is something we've talked about quite a bit demographically, trend-wise. You mentioned that timeline. Is that going to cause an even bigger jump in your mind over the next few years in the stock values? Absolutely. Absolutely. So when you think about the aging demographic, over the last decade, the 80-plus-year-old age cohort grew at about 1.5%. There were 2 million additional people added to that age cohort. Look at the next decade. It's growing at about 4.5%. That's 8 million more people. So that demand is continuing to grow. 2027 is a year that is really going to see the most amount of explosive growth. We're at a point in time when new supply into the seniors housing space is actually decelerating. And so we have the supply-demand imbalance that all real estate investors love. Because what that means is that you will see growth and you will see continued cash flow appreciation and therefore value appreciation. Now, there's also on that same healthcare kind of uh, aging demographic side, there are also real estate investment trusts that specialize in uh, laboratory type facilities, you know, owning those commercial type facilities. Is healthcare thematically, besides just seniors, 
going to be something, drug companies, pharmaceutical companies, and the facilities they need? So we do have life sciences, which do own labs um, as part of the real estate universe. At a, the coincident point in time, what you're seeing is that lab space have a significant oversupply. And so there is a bit of a different dynamic going on. The underlying need, obviously, for lab and life science space is going to continue to grow. And over the long term, I think, is a favorable area to be in. But at the current time is not something that I'm super excited about. However, when you look, for example, in the skilled nursing area, rehab area, which is more short term stays for seniors, that's an area that I think is going to continue to have really robust fundamentals at its back and have that supply demand imbalance. And because we have an expert like you here, I don't want to let you go without talking a little bit about residential housing, okay. the housing shortage in America right mm -hmm. now. Is there anything market wise that can happen where people can position themselves for an outcome one way or the other, given the housing shortage in America? So housing shortages and affordability is absolutely a problem. We are at multi-decade lows when it comes to affordability. A way in which I think you can benefit from that from an investment perspective is investing within single family rentals. So this is an area that has been institutionalized over really the past decade coming out of the global financial crisis. And you have a company like AMH, which was formerly known as American Homes for Rent and now is just called AMH, which is really benefiting from the, um, the, the need for Americans to have an affordable place to live. And the, the, the cash flow growth that you're seeing out of this company really is, is very extreme. All right. So all different parts of real estate covered. Laurel Durkee, thank you so much for being here. We'll see you again soon. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, coming up on the show, OpenAI and Sam Altman are back in the spotlight after reportedly coming under scrutiny from the SEC. We've got those details ahead. The exchange is back after this. Welcome back to The Exchange. The hack into Change Healthcare, the tech subsidiary of United Health Group, continues to disrupt hospitals and pharmacies across the country. The health department reportedly working with UNH to assess the impact on patient care as well. And this, as we're getting new numbers, looking at the cost of ransomware attacks in the past year. Our own Eamon Javers has those details. Hey there, Dom. Ransomware has come roaring back and the volume of ransom payments to criminals from hacking victims set a new record in 2023, surpassing $1 billion for the first time. Take a look at this chart from blockchain analysis firm Chainalysis, which just put out their annual report on crypto crime today. You see a dramatic drop in ransomware payments there from criminals uh, from 2021 to 2022, uh, which experts say is largely attributable to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which disrupted criminal hacking gangs operating in both countries. But then at the right-hand side of the chart, in 2023, the payments rocketed back up to a new high of $1.1 billion, which Chainalysis says is due to a large influx of new players into the space. Other analysts have also suggested that the Russians and Ukrainians have been able to regroup themselves a little bit since the early days of the war. And part of what's driving that new high, Chainalysis said, is a new emphasis on very large ransom payments, with 
with the share of $1 million plus ransom surging, even as the smaller payouts decline, as you can see on this chart here. Uh, that means the bad guys are able to generate more revenue with less work. And one piece of good news in all this, though, Dom, total cryptocurrency value received by illicit addresses is way down. Now, that's a grab bag category that includes things beyond just ransomware, including sanctions violations, terrorist finance, child sexual abuse material, other terrible activities on the internet. The figure for all illicit addresses was $39.6 billion in 2022. That drops to $24.2 billion in 2023. Why is that? Well, it's in part because Chainalysis counts the $8.7 billion in creditor claims against collapsed crypto exchange FTX in their 2022 number, which drives up the total for that year. So, you know, depending on how you count it, though, things look a little bit better than they did before, Don. Back over to you. All right, Eamon Javers with the latest there. Thank you very much. Now, speaking of cybersecurity, let's get some show and tell here where we show you a chart and then tell you the story. Okta shares are spiking 20% after the cybersecurity giant beat earnings and revenue estimates and posted strong guidance. Now, as a result, Bank of America is double upgrading that stock from underperform to a buy rating and boosting its tar target price to from $64 all the way up to $165. Here's what the CEO told Money Movers about the ramp up they're seeing in those cyber attacks. In the last 30 days, we've blocked over 2 billion malicious attacks against our customer base. We're not always perfect and we're trying to improve that and get better, but the big picture story is that identity-based attacks are a very serious problem. Over the many years ahead, we, we're going to be a $5 billion and $10 billion company, and we're confident that we can continue to grow to those levels and also deliver profitability. All right, cyber big focus. Now let's send it over to Tyler Matheson for a CNBC News update. Hi, Ty. Dom, thank you very much. New York Attorney General Letitia James investigating the cause of last week's AT&T service outage and its response. The phone service provider said over the weekend that it would provide billing credits to those who were impacted by the out outage that lasted for almost 12 hours, though it didn't say exactly how many individuals lost service. Senator John Cornyn of Texas announced he will run to replace Mitch McConnell as the Senate's top Republican. The Texas senator had long been considered a possible successor to that leadership position, but McConnell's surprise announcement yesterday jump-started the race for a successor. And you could own a piece of the iconic TV series The Sopranos, the boost at Holston's Ice Cream Shop and Diner. I go there all the time. Well, not all the time, but often enough. The final scene of the series was filmed there. The booth is being put up for auction on eBay. Done so last night to help fund the diner's renovations. Bids had already topped $30,000 by noon today. Dominic, they have really good ice cream there, great candies, and terrific grilled cheese sandwiches. I recommend it. Holstein. Two thumbs up from Tyler Matheson there. Up. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Ty. We'll see you later on. Yeah. I want to draw your attention right now to shares of Excel Energy, the firm flagging. It received a letter from a law firm saying the utility could be liable for damages resulting from the Smokehouse Creek fire, which is now the largest Texas wildfire on record. Those shares you can see they're down by roughly 8% in intraday trading. Coming up on the show, it's the biggest publicly traded golf company in America that you've probably never heard of. A rare and exclusive interview with the CEO of the parent company of Titleist. The company's called the Kushnet on the business of golf, the consumer and the pending deal between the PGA Tour and Liv, possibly. That's next after this break.
Welcome back to The Exchange. Shares of Akushnet Holdings, this is the company behind huge golf brands like Titleist, lower today on a wider-than-expected loss and a revenue miss for the quarter. But those Titleist golf balls were a bright spot for that report and for Akushnet overall. So far this year, seven out of eight winners on PGA Tour events this year have used those Titleist golf balls. Joining me now for an exclusive interview and his CNBC debut is a Kushnet CEO, David Maher. David, thank you very much for being here with us. And I cannot help but see how you are framed there. You are at one of your U.S. golf ball manufacturing facilities. Can you take us through why you're there and how significant golf balls are to the Titleist and the Kushnet business? Yeah, nice to speak with you today, Dom. Uh, I am at Titleist Ball Plant 3 in New Bedford, Massachusetts. You said it, the Akushnet Company is the parent of Titleist and Footjoy. And the origin of the company is uh, goes back to the 1930s. The company was founded up the street at Ball Plant 1. Uh, and today we manufacture golf balls in, uh, in Ball Plant 3, which you see behind me. This particular plant makes Pro V1 and Pro V1X golf balls. We're running 24-7, have been for quite some time to keep pace with risk demand up the road at Ball Plant 2. We make the rest of our product lines as well. So we thought it appropriate if we're going to speak to you and your audience today to do so uh, from Ball Plant 3 here in New Bedford, Massachusetts. David, the stock right now is, is not exactly, I'm sure, what you would like to see given the results that you reported out there. Uh, it was a, a disappointing report, but golf balls and the Titleist brand specifically were a standout there. Can you take us through the positioning of Titleist from a brand from a golf ball perspective, a golf club and equipment perspective, and what your expectations are for 2024, given where your stock is trading today? Yeah, and, and we, look at, we look at our performance in, in 2023 as a great success. Our business up over 40% in the last couple of years. And we put forth our guide today, uh, which, which we see as real positive. Uh, we expect growth in balls, growth in clubs, growth in our gear business, growth in foot, foot joy, growth across segments, growth across regions. Uh, the ball business certainly uh, plays an outside role, outsized role in our profitability, as does the Titleist Club business, which is based on the West Coast. But we feel really positive about the state of the game, the state of our consumer, golf's dedicated player. Uh, the industry fundamentals are terrific, and we have terrific brand momentum uh, with, with all our brands, Titleist Foot Joy, and some of our recent acquisitions. So we're optimistic about the golf opportunity. Uh, as, as you and your uh, listeners, I'm sure, are aware, golf's been through quite a surge in the last handful of years. Number of players up some 20-odd percent. Rounds of play around the world uh, index right around 950 million rounds last year. That's about 150 million rounds per year, more than we saw in, in 2019. So the game is healthy. The industry is healthy. Uh, we, we really feel good about our results uh, from last year, and we think we carry a nice momentum into 2024. David, I, I think a lot of golfers out there in the audience know just who you guys are and what you do, but uh, maybe some people are surprised to know that a Kushnet is now the biggest by market value, pure play, publicly traded golf equipment company in the marketplace in America. You've had a fairly steady climb since the pandemic lows, driven by the COVID wave of golf popularity. Some of your other competitors have seen some of that wave, but also seen some volatility as well. Why do you think your business has performed perhaps in a different manner from a volatility perspective than some of your other competitors out there? 
Yeah, as I said, our business up over 40% in the last couple of years. And when the first thing we tell people about our business is you need to understand our target consumer. It's the game's dedicated player. They're avid, they're passionate, uh, they play a lot in good times, they play in bad times. They're not recession proof, but they're certainly recession resilient. And as I said, we're coming off a year in 2023 where record rounds of play uh, in the U.S. and around the world. So lots to be optimistic uh, about in, in the world of golf. Um, and I think, I think we get credit for our, our focus on premium golf balls, premium golf clubs, uh, our efforts to fit golfers, whether it's balls, whether it's clubs, whether it's footwear. I think it resonates with our golfers and certainly has resonated with investors over the years, today notwithstanding. Well, David, do you feel as though, given all of that popularity and surge, there is anything to be made of what's happening right now in the world of professional golf, arguably where it's the most visible? A growing rift between professional golfers, between the PGA Tour and the Saudi-backed Live Golf Tour. There seem to be some progress in deal-making and maybe not at the same time. Do you think the game is going to be in a good place, given what we're seeing in terms of the friction at the highest levels of professional golf? Yeah, Don, I would say typically there's a real correlation between the recreational game and the professional game, and they feed off each other. We've seen a bit of a disconnect in recent years where the rest recreational game is thriving, and the professional game certainly has been, has been fractured. I'll tell you what, we, we think very highly of the recent moves of the PGA Tour and SSG. Uh, I think that's a terrific partnership, and I think the fans are going to win from that. SSG brings a whole lot of expertise that complements the tour's many expertises. And again, I think it's going to be a, uh, a win for fans. And then the next step is what happens, what happens with Live and the PGA Tour. And by all accounts, they're certainly asking to both sides realize the importance of finding unification, uh, bringing players together more often. And, and I think both sides realize the value and importance of doing that. They haven't done it yet, but from what we hear and what, what, we're, what we're hearing out of the tours, that's certainly a priority for both sides. So we're optimistic long term. And again, I'll point to the recent move by the tour as, uh, as a really important first step in their alliance with the strategic sports group. All right. Well, Akushnet shares hit a record high on Friday post-IPO in 2016, down 7% right now. David, thank you so much for being here with us in your CNBC debut. We hope you'll join us again in the future. Thanks, Tom. Nice to see you. All right. Good to see you, too. Well, coming up on the show, Sam Altman's brief ouster from OpenAI catching the attention of the SEC, what regulators are looking for and what it could mean for Altman's future at the company. That's coming up next. Welcome back. The SEC is said to be investigating whether OpenAI misled investors. That's according to the Wall Street Journal, which says regulators are examining internal communications of CEO Sam Altman. That's the focus of today's Tech Check with Deirdre Bosa. Dee, what else can you tell us? Hey, so Dom, the SEC is now going to try and get to the bottom of what happened last November when Sam Altman was briefly ousted and then returned about five days later. Why did the board oust him in the first place, saying that they had lost confidence in his ability to lead? And why have they just gone back seemingly to business as usual? There are still so many questions around that dramatic period and so few answers. Yet it has done little to change or harm Altman's ambitions and prospects and those of OpenAI. OpenAI was still able to reportedly close that latest tender offer at the same $80 billion valuation that it targeted before the drama. Sam Altman, he is still trying to raise potentially trillions of dollars to reach the global chip industry. 
Now, there's also the OpenAI board's investigation being run through a law firm. Findings for that could come as soon as next month. OpenAI has declined to comment on this, guys, but just because, Dom, there is an inquiry doesn't mean it will be a full-blown investigation. And it is interesting to note that Thrive Capital, which led the latest round, that tender offer at $80 billion valuation, that still went ahead. Um, maybe they knew something that we didn't. Maybe they were fed communications as well. I guess those are the questions that the SEC is going to be looking into. All right. Still a hot topic for sure with regard to open AI and that drama this past fall. Thank you very much, D. Bosa. We'll see you later on for Tech Check as well. Coming up here on the show, solutions, storage, and salad. We've got the action, the story, and the trade on Dell, NetApp, and Sweetgreen in earnings exchange. That comes up next after this break. Welcome back to The Exchange. We're trading AI today in computers and chips and kale salads. Dell, NetApp, and Sweetgreen are the subject of today's earnings exchange. And here with our trade is Delano Sapporo, New Street Advisors founder and CEO. He's also a CNBC contributor. Uh, we're going to kick things off with Dell, the share price more than doubling over the past year despite weaker PC demand. Loop Capital is seeing catalysts in artificial intelligence, which could drive PC demand and increase enterprise spend on Dell's server offerings as well. Uh, Delano, you're a buyer of Dell here. Take us through why. Hey, Don. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I think one of the reasons why is if we see a refresh um, in the PC market in the second half of this year, I think that would help you know, increase demand versus soften demand, what we're seeing in consumers as well as enterprises. Um, you just mentioned AI. I think that's going to be a, a catalyst for a lot of companies, especially when it comes to streamlining their internal operate operations. And Dell is actually well positioned to bring those solutions to their clients as well. So uh, the valuation is a risk for me. That's the one thing that could offset this opinion. The shares have been on a run um, and they're trading slightly expensive, uh, historically looking at the price of earnings. But I think if you look at the diversified business, it's, it's a buy here for, for, for myself and potentially for others. All right, let's move on to NetApp. The data technology company basically flat since November's jump on stronger guidance. Wedbush is noting higher costs and watching to see if companies pull back on cloud and data storage spending. What do you want to see here, Delano? Yeah, one thing I want to see is looking at the IT spend. I think that's different than we mentioned with Dell, that IT spend in this area um, might slow. So if they're looking at you know cloud consumption and a lot of enterprises are looking at slowing that down potentially, or if they're looking at their subscriber base and, and enterprises are looking at slowing that as well, that's a near-term risk for me. But when I look at it, I think the long-term catalyst after 2024, you know, public consumption, the data management, um, NetApp is well-positioned in my mind. So I think the risk of the IT spend, but I think that will be overcome and offset by the long-term trend that we're seeing um, when it comes to these cloud consumption services that NetApp's providing. All right, so NetApp down, Dell, down, Dell now we've addressed as well. And then finally, well, let's talk Sweetgreen. Those shares are up 10% so far this year, but still well off its 2021 highs. Oppenheimer is seeing stronger traffic trends and catalysts in new protein plate type offerings and the company's automated infinite kitchen system. But Delano, you're a little concerned about the strength of the salad consumer. Exactly. The strength of the salad consumer. And, you know, if, if Sweetgreen is getting, you know, in this situation, this macro environment that we're potentially seeing the lighter half of this year, if they're having a higher income consumer, um, that would probably stabilize demand. But I think that they may, may not have that. And I also see strong competition. Of course, you know, Cava, Chipotle, it's a battle of pricing power, being able to maintain that pricing power. Uh, so I'm, I would be fading here. I think they're seeing a lot of 
downgrades across the street, and there, there are a lot of lower revisions on EPS. Um, and for me, I want to see a little bit more of that growth story, especially for a newly IPO'd company. All right, so we got the trades there for Dell, Sweetgrid, and NetApp, and Delano Sapporu at New Street Advisors. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. We'll talk to you soon, sir. Thanks for having me, Dom. All right, well, let's check on the markets right now. The Dow's just down about 32 points at this stage. We're just about near, well, well off session lows at this point. That does it for here for the exchange. Coming up on Power Lunch, today is National Rare Disease Day. They're going to speak with the CEO of Gene Editing Company, CRISPR, about the treatment strides they're making. That's on the other side of this quick break. Keep it right here. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.